Hey friends, welcome. As always, delighted that you're joining me today. I think you're going to find this conversation with historian Alexis Coe. Very interesting. She is the first woman to write a biography of George Washington. And she has a unique viewpoint and she has some things to say that might surprise you. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. I am really excited to be chatting today with Alexis Coe. This is actually a meeting that I've been meaning to have for a very long time, ever since your book was first released. You never forget your first. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. We were talking before we got started today about presidential biographies. They're interesting. Presidents are inherently interesting people, but they tend to be written by a certain type of author, right? Like they tend to be written by men. They tend to be written by white men. They tend to be written by men of a certain age and education level. And not that there's anything wrong with that perspective, but I really enjoyed hearing a fresh and different take on a presidential biography. Why did you pick George Washington? Thank you. Well, I think you hit on a really important point. And since so many history lovers listen to your podcast, they do want to make a really important point, which is that much was made about me being the first woman to write a biography on Washington in four decades. And then the first woman historian in I don't even know how long. It's at least 100 years. There is no presidential historian of color, a dedicated Mm. presidential historian. And so the thing about presidents and studying them is I can't do it all, but I can get an idea of the conversation that's going on. Because if you think about history, you think about American history, and let's say Luso Brazilian studies or French history, you know, and then within presidential history, each president has its own little cottage industry. And in order to get to a president I might not spend a lot of time with, I usually read four to five biographies and I can know what's going on because they mention each other. You get the tension, you understand where they disagree and that works except in one occasion, and that was for George Washington. It absolutely did not work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I used to joke that the presidential scholars who write about Washington almost, like they had to show up to take an oath and someone just forgot to call me. You you take the oath and you say, I'm going to write a a book on George Washington and I promise to proceed in the exact same way as everyone who came before me. (laughs) And that includes saying, I'm going to break him out of his mold and he's he's too marble to be real. And then they all proceed in almost the exact same manner. They use the same quotes. The structure is almost identical, you know, give or take a few hundred pages. There's absolutely nothing new. Slavery is usually contained within a chapter. And we want a hero. And that struck me as off. I didn't see an evolution. And then I started checking some of the quotes in the stories that some of them told, and they were just not true. Or there was just, you know, the quote that they all use is actually like the least interesting quote of all, or it's just completely misrepresented. And so I felt like this is the problem with being a public historian and an independent historian. If I get this sort of bee in my bonnet and I don't go after it, I feel like I'm complicit. I am a part of the problem. And that is how I came to write a book on George Washington. (laughs) You wanted to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Yes. (laughs) Was he always one of your favorite presidents? Was he, has he been one of those figures for you for many decades where you're like, you know, I'm just fascinated by Washington or are you surprised by your interest in him? Oh, absolutely surprised. I grew up in California and we study a very different history there, but what is absent from our school trips, our presidential libraries and historic sites. We, of course, have Richard Nixon, but no one's really trying to induct that into the California schools. At least not when I was there. I did not even visit Mount Vernon until I was in graduate school. It was almost amusing to me how reverent people were and how much nostalgia and lore was invested in particularly the historic homes, less the presidential libraries, because of course I love them all. But the homes themselves were were odd to me. And I did visit Mount Vernon when I was in grad school, and I thought it was really interesting and provocative. But I would not say, you know, I did not leave thinking, oh, yes, this is what I'm going to do. Mm. Okay, what was the moment for you? you, Can you pinpoint it, the moment where you're like, I have to write a book about George Washington? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) just as you just said it, I remember just putting my my forehead in my palm and thinking, how am I going to how am I going to sell my agent on this? <laughs> like, how is going to drop me? It was a Mary Washington quote. It was a Mary Washington quote that was used by Ron Chernow. Quote was representative of the situation that he was describing that was in a letter. And everyone had given Mary Washington a really hard time, Washington's mother. And 
early on, I thought that was really odd because what they didn't describe him as, which we described Barack Obama and sometimes Gerald Ford, as people raised by single mothers. So I thought it was weird that she was being sidelined in this way. And then I kept looking at her and she was really interesting. But there's a scene that Chernow describes in Washington where he is, you know, Mary Washington comes to visit and she comes in like, you know, a bat out of hell. And, you know, he uses those words and that she she takes him to task for all these things and demands to know his plans and is so angry at him. And that is not at all how Washington describes it. And I went straight to the archives because I said, oh my goodness, did Ron Chernow somehow get access to some letter that no one else, no other historian has seen? My God, what privilege. He, he runs in certain circles. Maybe an archivist is, is handing him something. No, it's the same letter that's referenced by everyone. It simply says, you know, his mother stopped with, with other names are, are listed in there. And, you know, he's delayed. Washington is delayed getting to the headquarters because he's supposed to meet with Governor Dinwiddie, the last royal governor. And so he uses this visit as an excuse, but he's not saying anything to suggest that she's a bat out of hell and she's like coming to ruin his day and ruin his trip and ruin his life. And so I just thought, all right, what else is going on here? And of course, once you start poking... Take one step into the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. You don't know how far down you will tumble. And you just have to stop at one point. Is the unfortunate <laughs> part. But I have documents that are like 40, 50 pages, no narrative, just pointing out faults and misnomers that had just been perpetuated over time. Mm, and I want to, I definitely want to talk about that in one second. I just wanted to point out something that you said that I thought was very interesting that different biographers, different historians interpret the same set of words in wildly disparate ways. And what your perception as a woman, your perception as a younger woman about Mary Washington's words was perhaps quite different than historians prior to you. When they read those same words, they felt that they meant something different. Right. Or you just, I mean, it's unfortunate. I don't think there was much thinking going on. Women are treated like accessories or eyewitnesses. And that is their only real use. They're either helping a man or they're thwarting him. They're like these caricatures. And so what is really vexing to me, not just about women, but about people of color, about anyone who is not a famous person we can name, There's not a lot of interest. There's simply a lack of curiosity about these people. Mary Washington, even Martha Washington, who's painted as a saint when she's really not. There is this need to place women and enslaved people in these categories. And I really felt as though it was a matter of being curious about the world and in a way that I just don't think that these biographers who came before me are. And when I say the world, I mean the greater world, not just the man and the immediate power. And so I think it's a blend of an attraction to power and a sort of unhealthy relationship with nostalgia. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I do think some of it is probably wanting to romanticize the past. Like you're saying, an unhealthy relationship with nostalgia, that like this idea that things used to be better. 
Things you people yeah. used to be heroic. People used to fight valiantly in battle. They used to sail across the Delaware. People used to be different and better than we are today. And I think that's probably a dangerous assumption. Do you agree? Having read their diaries, yes. <laughs> they are not, they're not better. They are better at certain things, as we all are. I'm not culpable for the actions of George Washington, but I am responsible for understanding them. And if I'm going to claim to be an American who is interested in our country's history, and I do think that the act of being a historian and being interested in American history in general is a very patriotic one, then you have to look at these people quite honestly. I don't know any other way to do it. I don't know what the point would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't do ourselves any favors by not being honest about who somebody was and what they accomplished and where their faults were, right? Like we we are not made better by just holding up a figure from the past on a pedestal and glorifying them like a deity. That actually does not benefit us in the long run. We don't learn from any of the mistakes that they made. We're not looking at history with open eyes. And it's those kinds of viewpoints that lead people, I think, to overly romanticize the past in which chances are quite good they would have had few rights and would have died from a very painful illness. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house, and then when people come over, they're like, um... Your house smells weird. There's a solution for that, and it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant. It is taking care of the smell at the source by using Lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet. It is a whole body deodorant. It is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality, you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code SHARON. We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place? Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access 
masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes, you can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible. And then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Sharon. Masterclass.com slash Sharon. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others, and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up, and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. We have to talk about some of the enduring myths about George Washington. And he is in many ways a mythical figure. And a lot of people know about things like, you know, I cannot tell a lie. I chopped down the cherry tree. Uh, He had wooden teeth. There's a huge variety of myths. As you mentioned, you have like a massive document just of like things that are not true about George Washington that people commonly believe. So can we start first of all with the teeth? Because you do talk about the teeth situation in your book so what first of all why are americans obsessed with george washington's teeth and secondly give us like the real the real tea on his teeth yes well they're sort of all connected i'll give the positive myth that i'm going to dispel and then the you know less positive to say that george washington never told a lie i'm surprised that that is not what he's turning in his grave about because he loved spying Mm -hmm. he was a spy master during Mm -hmm. the revolution loved spying and he got so into it and some of the moments in which you see him reveal himself it's either when he's angry or excited and very rarely does he get excited about something other people are excited about you know he's very into making tools for his farm and I do however I'm with him with mules his passion for mules was great but so I feel like by saying he never told a lie you're really denying him this important part of his story mm-hmm. as general. And then that leads into other stories about how we won the revolution, how he set us up for success because we set off this age of revolutions and yet we were so stable. How? Read the book. It's in there. It's in that section on the revolution. But going back to the teeth, now this is sort of related because, okay, you can tell why. 
this goes back to the cherry tree story, right? That Washington cut down a cherry tree and then his dad said, why, you know, did you do that? And he said, no. And then I cannot tell a lie. I did. I don't know if he cut down a cherry tree. He cut down trees, but honestly, he he enslaved, you know, as many people as his age when his father died. His first title was master. And so he probably ordered someone to to cut down a tree, even at that age. But the point is it has something to do with wood. Let's just consider wood for a second. What happens when you put wood in water? Mm-hmm. It doesn't it's work. Splinters, Mm-mm. no. It doesn't work. It does, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not a good material for that. So it doesn't belong in your mouth. And also it would really mess up the inside of your mouth while you were, I don't know, breaking in the denture. <laughs> but this points to something we don't want to know. And we're so committed to not knowing that we have invented this insane story that his dentures were full of wooden teeth. It is true that by the time Washington was inaugurated, he only had one tooth left. Was there something about Washington in particular that made his teeth hurt bad for any reason that we know of? Like, why did he have only one left? I mean, possibly Martha lectures their grandchildren and nieces and nephews about oral hygiene, I think, as a result. It's definitely a fixation for all of them. I think a part of it was oral hygiene when he was in the wilds of the Ohio as a young man, you know, fighting uh, on behalf of the British against the French. Some of it, his dentist accused him of drinking too much port which shows that they were not close because his drink was Madeira. But I don't think he drank that much. There's one letter from Lafayette in which he, they got drunk at Mount Vernon, but that was when Lafayette was visiting after the war and they were, you know, feeling very warm and tender towards each other. Otherwise he didn't drink a ton, though he did like a nice Madeira. I think it was just bad genes, bad hygiene, bad luck. But, you know, dentures were not uncommon among the elite. But what filled them was, you know, walruses and other sorts of ivories, you know, tusks of elephants. So we have to say, you know, he was a bit of a poacher. Of course, they were all hunters. And then you also have to imagine the wiring that it goes into for the dentures is not good. So if you look at portraits of Washington, there aren't that many. You can see his smile, if you want to call it that, his sort of straight lined mouth and his jaw. It changes over time. And that's because he's wearing different sets of dentures. But here's where it gets bad. And this is why I led with the spying. It was not uncommon in early America. And I know this from uh, an ad that Washington's dentist took out to solicit the teeth of enslaved people to be put in the mouths of elite white people in their dentures. Washington did that. He also would hang on to teeth that had fallen out, not really understanding that they fell out for a reason. And he would try to have his dentist put those in as well, in addition to the ivory. But he did then realize that he could turn to his own enslaved community because between him and Martha, there were, you know, at times 400 enslaved people at Mount Vernon and simply pay them. And he paid them under market value. And so when we think about his teeth, you know, not only were they wooden, but they sort of, um, I mean, they're emblematic of America in a lot of ways and certainly of the founding era. Mm. So he would go to his own enslaved people and say, I'll give you X amount of dollars if you let me take that tooth out of your mouth. Is that what you're saying? I don't know how he procured the teeth. We don't know. I hope he wasn't going and pulling them. But I think what what, you know, it would probably be the overseer slash 
doctor and somehow the teeth would come to him. And the thing about Washington that I'm very thankful of because he cared about his every cent, every cent. And so his financial records, his ledgers are really revealing once you understand how to read them and the language and what his intentions were. And so this is written down just as any other transaction. He finds a better deal. He always finds a better deal. Mm. How would he procure the ivory? I mean, it's not like we have walruses and elephants <laughs> in Tidewater, Virginia. Like all of his things that came from abroad. He, he bought a special suit for the inauguration. It was homespun and brown, but his shoes were fancy. They had diamonds because he was all flash. You know, he really liked sumptuous fabrics and he married well. He married rich and he ordered up. So he got to order from the most expensive, exclusive London purveyors. And that's where he would get sort of everything. Um, And I think also the dentist would prefer procure, you know, things as well. But everything was on special order, as we would call it today. (laughs) Okay. Can you give us a couple of other commonly believed things about Washington that are just not true? Mm. This comes up a lot just because it's something that people will say quickly in a sentence when they're talking to me and they're interviewing me or they're just talking about Washington and they'll say, you know, the wig and the, and the thing, no wig, no wig, credit mm. where credit is due. That is his hair. And not only that, he was a bit of a ginger when he was younger. He had reddish hair, which is like very shocking to people. So is Jefferson. But that was an elaborate hairstyle that that man had another man do all the time. So an enslaved person would work on that with, you know, curlers. And then they would put it in a little queue, like a cute little jacket. I always call it like a little sleeping bag. And that was all him. That was all Mm. his hair. That was not a wig. That's fascinating. That seems like a lot of work to maintain that hairstyle. Except, you know, they didn't wash very much. So (laughs) they're not not as much work as we would hope, but (laughs) but just enough. We talk about him as the father of our country. George Washington, Martha Washington. We imagine her in the bonnet. I always don't get fooled by the bonnet. I always say that. Don't get fooled by the bonnet. But... Washington had no biological children. And this was not a big deal. In early America, and for a long time in America, if you met a woman who had young children, you thought it was great because you could raise them, you know, two, three years old. If they lost their father, you could just sort of swoop in and be their father. And you just wanted an heir. There was paternity. It wasn't really knowable. And people just didn't care as much at that level. And the other thing is it almost guaranteed that the woman you were marrying could have more children. Mm -hmm. And when Washington saw Martha, I think that's what he saw. And he loved her children and raised them as his own. And then their grandchildren he raised as well. And he raised nieces and nephews and other people's children. I mean, this man was fathering all the time, but he was not actually a father. And when I talk about fathering all the time, I mean, let's take his stepson and his step-grandson. Washington was constantly communicating with their schools, their teachers, their principals, whoever, and basically saying, don't tell Martha, but I'd like him to be inoculated or lecturing these boys about 
things like losing umbrellas. Like that's the level of almost helicopter parenting he was doing. And he was doing it because he loved them. He was also doing it because he was so excited. He was the eldest son from the second family and his father died young. He didn't get any of the rights and privileges that his two half brothers got. And they got them. They got to go to London for schooling, you know, things that really made a big difference in early America between your your general potential, the opportunity structure that you were presented with as a colonist. And so he thought, oh, my God, I can give them everything. Mm. They can go to the best schools. They will never want for anything. They will come out in society and everyone will want to marry them because Washington at 15, 16, 17 He's basically, he, he, he's almost shameless. You know, he will write to any man who's rich, who has like a young eligible daughter and try to talk his way in. It doesn't often work out. He even is like, I'm sick, but I want to try again. Are you sure she's not interested? Like, are you sure? And it's not until his heroics and, you know, and, and he has to meet Martha. She's the only one who's sort of set up for this. So I think those are things that I, I find really, really interesting about Washington as well. Mm. And that we, again, we think of all these founders as being so well-educated. He had to drop out of school when he was 14. They will all at some point give him a lot of backhanded compliments about his deficient education, as he called it. And it's something I also really love about Washington is that he was an autodidact to a certain extent, and he loved to research, but he would pick up books about how to do things. So when he was made the general of the Continental Army, he had really just led the Virginia militia like a, over a decade earlier. And so he, he had no experience with a major army against like the, the greatest superpower in the, the known world. And so he, as he's rolling out of Philadelphia, he stops by a bookstore and he picks up books about basically like how to general, you know, how to win wars. And so I, I yeah, I think that those things are, are really interesting about Washington and, and sort of they fall into the myth area. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love that fact about him that he was like, and it's okay, I will be the general. But first, I need to find out how to be a general. <laughs> I'll read I, reading and writing. <laughs> I will read the books on the way and I will figure it out. <laughs> I'll be ready by the time I get to Boston, I swear. <laughs> the big thing that Washington had that the other men who showed up in Philadelphia did not have, besides like a little bit of experience, there were people who, there who had more experience than him, but they tried to cut deals with the Continental Congress. They tried to say things like, all right. What if I lead your army, but if we lose, you pay me a bunch of money. But Washington was like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> you know, I don't have a choice anymore. And it's not because he was reckless. He was anything but. He was anything but. Washington's biggest complaint about the Boston Tea Party, he thought that their reasoning was correct and sound, but he, he really disliked that they destroyed property. Which, of course, was the whole point. Mm -hmm. I made that point without dumping all the tea. And it's one of our, our best stories. Mm -hmm. He would have denied us that because it wasn't it wasn't profitable. It wasn't a good idea for, for you know, entrepreneurs, for capitalists. Right. I mean, the patriots were like, we already tried writing letters. Yes. <laughs> what else do we have? And it's, you, you've been you've been there, except you don't pick up arms, hopefully. But he writes about how there's a quote in which he's, you know, I'm done writing polite letters. Mm. How should modern Americans judge figures from the past who do things like enslave other human beings? 
things that violate our collective conscience? How should we treat or judge figures? I think that's constantly a source of debate and, you know, it's difficult to parse out. How do we judge people like George Washington who enslaved many hundreds of people? The word judge, I think, is a part of the issue because it sounds like we've got a gavel and we're ruling on this. I don't think we should judge them. You know, some a place like Mount Vernon, who profits off the life of George Washington, says really explicitly, we are here to celebrate the life of George Washington. We are here to learn about George Washington. This is not a choice, actually. He's in our textbooks. We have to. If we're judging him, we're also celebrating him. So my my issue with both of these perspectives is that they're mutually exclusive. And so I don't think I've come up with a potent word to you know offer you in exchange for that one. But I think what we need to do is we need to understand. We're not really here to judge. And for me, it's a professional relationship. Are there moments where I go, oh, yes, of course, all the time. At one point, Washington is, you know, I mentioned having an enslaved person cut down a tree. It's because when he's older, he has an older enslaved man named Tom move a log and he, you know, can't do it on his own. <laughs> Logs are huge and heavy. And Washington slaps him himself. And of course, at that moment, I thought like Washington, like one, you're enslaving this man. Yes. But there, there are 90 things to think about because he's a human on this day. Both of them are humans and Washington is not treating him on a human on every single level. And I have to think of all the levels. I can't just think, I think, yes, he's enslaved. This is true. He's also expecting Herculean efforts by this man, something that Washington would have never been able to do on his own at any point in his life. Why is he so demanding and impractical with a lot of things? And what is going on with him that day? I also think it's, I don't think of it as good about it. I think of it as instructive. If you want him to be your role model, if you want him to be your example of the worst person who was ever president, that is a personal choice and you're very welcome to, but that is not why we know his name. We know his name because he is the most historically significant person in our country. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, 
code SHARON. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I want to get to Washington's farewell address and many of his words in that farewell address. First of all, as you mentioned, he voluntarily gives up power and people were like, you can do that. (laughs) or like why why would you do that that's a thing people can do yeah voluntarily give up power so that of course as you mentioned was precedent setting and it set up peaceful transfer of power which is an incredibly important aspect of uh, democracy not just in the united states but around the world the outgoing person assists the incoming person and we don't have a bloody revolution or a violent overthrow or one political rival killing their opponent in in order to seize power. It was a very, very revolutionary idea. And he gives this very eloquent address to Americans as he's leaving power. And one of the things he does is caution people about excess factionalism and cautions them about evil men will usurp the reins of power for themselves and they will take it away from the people where it belongs. And it, it, in many ways, when you read his words today, you're like, it is almost prophetic about what he was trying to caution people against because we are there. <laughs> we are literally there. And it's, we've been there probably for a little while, but we are, it is glaringly obvious that we have achieved everything that Washington did not want for America. And I would love to hear more about your perspective on his farewell address and about factionalism in that time period. It was an explicit warning. <laughs> if you were to have told me, and I don't know, 2017, 2018, 2019, all these years that I was working on it, that the farewell address would 
smack of modernity and would be mm-hmm. feel like he had transported himself to the future, mm-hmm. I would not, I would not have taken that bet. I would not have taken that bet. And yet it was just ringing in my ears mm-hmm. for, for a while. Partisanship has always been bad, but it was terrifying to watch it happen. And Washington in some ways was responsible for it. He didn't, he's the only president who didn't declare a, a political party. And as a result, he sort of forced it on people and they did it. Oh, and he hated to be criticized. And you know what's funny is that is an edited version. Alexander Hamilton edited it down because he thought that Washington's version wouldn't age well because he was so angry. And if you met, that is not the dynamic you imagine between Washington and Hamilton. So anyone who's seen Hamilton knows Washington is the one who can keep his cool. Hamilton is the one who's saying, you know, Mm -hmm. everything he feels and thinks without any filter. Washington is, you know, he, he, he was estranged. He was frenemies with everyone. He publishes this carefully written farewell address in all the newspapers and then goes about his business. He still has to work for quite a long time. He says, you know, be careful because men who are only interested in power are not going to represent their regions well. They're only going to represent the people who vote for them. They're going to work actively against the interests of other people. And they will absolutely be exposed and vulnerable to foreign interests because foreign interests will come in with money and they'll buy it their way in. Mm-hmm. And then America is pretty much over because of course these were all the complaints about parliament. Mm-hmm. When he says, okay, this is a direct quote from his farewell address. However, political parties may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and usurp for themselves the reins of government. And I've always been curious, was he talking about anybody in particular? Sure. He was talking about Jefferson, all those guys. And Jefferson, you know, famously a Francophile, the French Revolution was happening. The ambassador came over and tried to get an audience with Washington, kept trying to drag us into the war. He definitely was talking about the men he knew, the men he came up Mm. with, as we would say. So he viewed people like Jefferson as cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled, is what you're saying. He thought he was a liar. Jefferson with Madison and Monroe to a certain extent were were authoring essays under pseudonyms. And the pseudonyms were like my favorites. My favorite is Porcupine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was indeed very prickly. And they would write these essays. And Washington, of course, knew who was writing them. And Hamilton was, you know, word for word, obsessively arguing the case. But by the end, it was just completely clear that it was Jefferson. And Washington believe he says, you know, I believe you, I believe you. And then he finally says, I, I don't believe you. And they never spoke again. Mm. They never spoke again. And so he absolutely was worried immediately what happened when the government actually started. When we won the war, Washington gives up power for the first time. And everyone thinks, oh my God, this is the greatest man in the world, his first retirement. And he goes home to Mount Vernon 
And the North and the South are already fighting about who's going to pay all these war debts. Mm-hmm. And this, the South says, well, we don't owe any money. And of course, we know why they don't owe any money. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. So everyone's already fighting. And he he's already like, oh, my God, we're going to lose this. So I fought for eight years. I risked everything. And he suffered for it and gained quite a lot. And so he's worried they're going to ruin it from the very beginning. And it just took a while to see. We are so vulnerable. And we don't realize it. And we got a little glimpse of it. We're dancing around it, but we got a little glimpse on January 6th. And imagine being George Washington, fighting for, you know, eight-ish years. And coming out of retirement again, your wife being totally unhappy with you that you have to spend eight more years out of Virginia. You lose all your children. You are known as the greatest man in the world. And then you're hated by half of your country. You have everything to lose. And at the same time, all these other revolutions that we set off, there's so much bloodshed, guillotines galore in France. We didn't have that. And so he was always managing, managing, managing. And that he did learn, we have to say, you know, as an enslaver, he's managing his plantation, his forced labor camp. He's making sure there are no rebellions. He's maximizing labor. He's making sure that He's profiting off everything. And so I think that's what's going on is he's managing this this country. And so he sees the weaknesses and he sees the peril and the greatest danger were his best friends. Mm. The other men lauded for this heroic, incredible feat. Mm. What would you love for people listening to this, the average American to know about George Washington? You know, the founders, they expected us to change quite Mm -hmm. a bit Mm -hmm. all the time. And if we didn't, then we would fall into decay. This is again from the farewell dress. The corrupt men decay. That's why we had to rebel in the first place, you know, as as the British called it. We called it a revolution. And so I think he would, he would be surprised we haven't had another. Mm-hmm. They knew slavery was going to end. They knew they were on borrowed time. They would have been surprised at the role that women played. They would have been surprised at, you know, purportedly equal citizenship and things like that. But I think he would have been most disappointed and shocked by how little we progressed and how much we put on them, on the founders, how mm-hmm. much faith and how we have. I mean, he would want to be remembered. Certainly he, he knew his legacy would matter. He wanted to be at the center of his his country's story, I would say, it just didn't really matter which country it was at first. But he would be also disappointed in that country. It is always very, I think, instructive and important to humanize characters from the past and to know that Washington had to buy books on how to be a general. (laughs) And he was not well-educated and so consequently did not know how to be president. There was, there's no president of America 101 book to buy. Like you could buy a book for generals. There was no concept of like how to be the president. He was making it up. He made it up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And as many things as he got right, as many things as the founders got right, as many, as much foresight as they had, as much wisdom and intelligence as they had. I think it behooves us to remember that they literally invented it. 
It exists because they invented it. And we have the power to do the same. Things can change because we invent the change that could become so important to future historians. Absolutely. I love that. Yes. Mm. Thank you so much for being here today. One of the things I think people will enjoy about your book, You Never Forget Your First, is first of all, it's entertaining to read. It is not one of those 1,000 page biographies where uh, it recounts every uh, boring quote in old language. It is compact, it is like just over 200 pages. It is witty, it really creates a different portrait of Washington and it humanizes him in ways that many biographies have not been able to achieve. So congrats on your incredible amount of research and work. Uh, And I think a lot of people will enjoy reading your book. Thank you so much. Mm. Hey, thanks so much for listening. You can check out You Never Forget Your First. It's a New York Times bestseller. It is written by presidential historian Alexis Coe. Thank you so much for listening to Here's Work It's Interesting. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider sharing it on social media or leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform? All those things help podcasters out so much. The show is written and researched by executive producer Heather Jackson, Valerie Hoback, and Sharon McMahon. Our audio engineer is Jenny Snyder, and it's hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. We'll see you again soon.